Okay, our, uh, our audio is on, so we're going to get started. It's a few minutes early, but not too many. And we've got some ground to cover today as we look at Romans chapter 15, the second part of that chapter, verses 22 through 33. Uh, we are really coming into the close of this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and there is a dramatic shift that we see that takes place as we get to these verses. So before we get to that, let's ask the Lord's blessing as we come to his word. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have not left us to live this life alone, that we have your spirit to guide us, to lead us, to comfort us, to instruct us. We thank you that you have given us your word, that we can read truth, and you will apply that truth into our individual lives. Grant that that take place today as we now turn to this passage of Scripture. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen. Romans 15, verses 22 through 33, I've entitled this, Plans for the Future. And you will see why as I read it. I'm just going to read this whole section, and then we're going to work our way through it. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have, become, have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Obviously, there is no doctrinal teaching here. We're no longer wrestling with the issues of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and how they relate to each other and to have peace within the church and for the church to work together to build it up, Paul is now giving us his plans for the future. He's talking about it in writing to the Romans, but he gives us an insight into this man that we really haven't seen up to this point. It tells us in more, large part how he looks at his life and how he looks to the future. He shifts from teaching to planning. And I find it really interesting that he uses the words, 
I have no more room here. No longer have any room for work in these regions. That's in verse 23. And uh, in a small group Bible study that Carolyn and I are part of, we've been following Paul in the book of Acts. And I can easily believe this because though I knew of his three missionary journeys, to take that bit by bit, how saturated that whole area around the Aegean Sea was with his travels and his teaching and his discipleship. He had been there for a couple of years. More than that if you combine all the journeys. And now apparently he is satisfied that that area has been evangelized and he's making plans to move on to somewhere else. Now he tells us what he wants to do and why he wants to do it. He starts out by saying, I hope to come to you on my way to Spain. So there's sort of an intermediary stop in one of his next journey that he's planning to go on to the west to get the gospel into that part of the Roman Empire that is still heavily settled and civilized but has not heard the gospel. And then he interjects, but on my way to Spain, I'd like to come by and see you. Now apparently he has not been in Rome and he does not know these people by sight unless he had met with them in that time in Macedonia and Achaia and around the GNC, and after he left them, they had traveled to Rome. Nobody knows. Next week we're going to get to the last chapter, and we're going to have a plethora of names of people that he's greeting. Well, how can he be greeting them if he's never been there? Well, the two possibilities are that people have told him about them, or he's been with them in other places, and they have since relocated to Rome. Remember, this is a very transitory society, much more so than we think. These are not people in thatch huts. The Roman roads go around the Mediterranean. They are maintained for military purposes, but they certainly facilitate civilian travel. And by ship, all along the edges of the coast of the Mediterranean, people were using ships for their transportation, as Paul did on his missionary journeys. But that's his plan. I want to eventually get to Spain, but before I do that, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And after I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to come back to you by way of um, Rome to get to Spain. Now, that's, that's what he's thinking, that's what he's describing, and what he wants to do. And why is he making this plan? Well, the most obvious is that these churches of people who have converted to Christianity, primarily Gentiles, as he says in this passage, want to contribute to the care for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Now think about it, once these Jews become Christians, they are no longer welcome in the synagogue. They're no longer welcome in the temple. They're no longer welcome in the welfare system, which did exist in the Jewish nation. So they were cut off from any kind of a means of support, and many of them may have lost their jobs because they had become Christians and weren't staying true to the Jewishness, which is really ironic since they were most true of all in recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. So these Christians in this area, Gentiles, have given money to Paul to take back to Jerusalem to help take care of brothers and sisters they have never seen, but they know they're in need. This is where it all begins, our drives for missions, the work that this church and many others do for people we've never seen and will probably never meet, but we know they are in need of help, financial help and also the gospel of Christ. So 
that's what he was going to do with the physical needs. But he also wants to see these people in Rome that he's been writing to. He's heard a lot about them, obviously. He's addressed a lot of their problems, given them a way to handle them. But he's not been there. So he definitely wants to go there to actually meet in person these people that he's written the letter to. And he wants to go to Spain because they need to hear the gospel too. So there's motivation for each of these stops along the way as he describes them to us. How does he plan this? How did he come up with this idea? Well, he knows the needs of the Christians in Jerusalem. He knows the needs of the Romans to continue to be guided and instructed in the faith personally, and he knows the needs of the people in Spain to hear about Jesus Christ. And he anticipates some difficulties. Don't let it pass you by. In that very last section that I read, he begs the Romans to join him in prayer to deliver him from the Jewish people who are going to attack him and cause problems. It's been prophesied. In the book of Acts, we're told that it had been prophesied to Paul everywhere he went. If you go to Jerusalem, you're going to encounter difficulties. There's great persecution. Don't do it. He still does it. He knows that's where God wants him to be. So he asks these people, please be in prayer for me to protect me from difficulties that apparently lie ahead. (laughs) This is where you have to see a little bit of the irony in what Paul has written here. This is his plan. And immediately it goes back to that old saying that I think all of you have heard, make God laugh, tell him your plan because it's amazing how we think we've got things lined out and as we're sensitive to him whoa that's not it whoop that's oh really that's what's involved in following Jesus Christ so this is what actually happens now I'm not going to go back and read it all but it's contained in Luke's description in the book of Acts chapters 21 through 28 we follow what happens to Paul after he has written this letter. And in a sense, yeah, his plans came to fruition. In another sense, boy, oh boy, this is not what we expected. So he does make it to Jerusalem. If you follow that in in Acts, he he gets on a a boat with Luke and other believers, lots of believers from time to time, and goes along the coast at times even to little islands out from the coast that are inhabited, but eventually makes it to the mainland north of Jerusalem. And he visits Christians there and encourages them and makes it to Jerusalem. So that part of the journey is complete, and though we're not told it, we can assume that the gift that had been given to help the Christians in Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians, had been delivered. So he was done with that. But uh, after making it to Jerusalem, things change a bit from what Paul was expecting. Now, he'd been told there'd be difficulties. He did not fully understand, I don't think, the extent of these difficulties because he is falsely accused in Jerusalem of desecrating the temple. He's hauled off, he's arrested, he's put in jail, and for two years the process begins to move along slowly slowly he's in this prison he's transferred to this prison he's back over to this prison he testifies about his faith in Christ to Jewish authorities to Roman authorities he uses this as an option uh, to get the gospel out to him but he is a prisoner 
for over two years just in that area. So he made it to Jerusalem, and he witnessed to Roman and Jewish authorities. And we're not told it, but it's assumed in the text that he is able to survive because believers are bringing him food and writing materials and clothing if need be while he's in prison. And then, (laughs) as a prisoner, he is taken to Rome by a very indirect route. So he gets on a ship. The weather is not good. It's the wrong season to be sailing in the Mediterranean. They hit a huge storm. Paul and the ship and the people on it are shipwrecked. They're on the island of Malta. Miracles are done there. He gets an opportunity to tell the gospel to those islanders. And then after they finally get things put back together, find another ship, they get him to Rome. In Rome... We're not really told this, but again, you read between the lines, you realize he's still under arrest, but he's under house arrest, and people can come to see him, and they can bring him things. So he is meeting, I am sure, a lot of these believers he's already written a letter to, plus lots of other people and lots of Jews who don't know about Jesus Christ. We're told uh, in Acts what that conversation is like. Well, we're not sure we understand who this Jesus is. Nobody's told us. So he's going to tell them, well, it's that magic number again. Another two years, he's in jail in Rome. We know that much. And then the narrative stops. And we really have no record. We have a lot of tradition, but no real historical record of what happened to Paul after that. Did he get out of jail? Did he get to Spain? Was he put back in jail? Was he executed there? Lots of tradition, some of it pretty plausible, but we just don't know. But that's what happened to his plan that he had told to the Romans in this letter. He made it to Jerusalem. Well, he made it to Rome as a prisoner, and we don't know if he ever got to Spain or not. So, no real heavy theological teaching here, right? Well, there's a lesson for us. As I looked at this, tried to consider what what do you do with a a travel log? How how do you apply that into our lives? And there are some things I think we can learn from this. First of all, when one phase of our life draws to a close, it is right and good to make plans for the next phase. We're following Paul's example. He has told Christians in other places, follow my example, follow my teaching, be imitators of me. And in looking at this, we see that his time in the missionary journeys in Greece and Asia was over. For whatever reason, how he determined that, he determined that's over. That phase is over. He's already planning for the next phase. And there's a lesson for us in that in our lives because each of us knows There are seasons in our life when we are able to do these things. And as we look back, those stop. And then we go into something else. And it's another chapter in the book of our life. And then that closes. And we go to something else. But as Paul did, I think his example for us, not to bemoan or to lament the chapter that's been closed, but to be looking ahead. And what is the next chapter? What shall I do with my life now that this is completed, this is over. What's the next phase? 
What do you need to see? What desire do you have? And there's no indication here that Paul was given divine guidance like he had been in other times in his missionary journeys. Times, remember, he wanted to take the gospel and the Holy Spirit prevented him from doing that three times. Then Macedonia showed up and he gets there, it was a man, and it turns out the women believe. All of that was by divine guidance, but he doesn't make any mention of that in this. So the, the, to me, the implication is this is his best idea of what should be next. It wasn't infallible, but he was looking ahead to what he could do with his life. So for us, when we see chapters in our lives closing, we can say goodbye to that. If we need to, we can, can mourn it for a bit, but then we've got to be looking ahead. What's the next phase? What's the next chapter? And for many of us, as we grow older and wiser and more mature in all of our learning, we understand, well, there are a lot of options that are closed. There are some things that I could have done 20 or 30 years ago, but no, physically, mentally, emotionally, I can't do that. So does that mean we just get put on the shelf? <laughs> no, absolutely not. What you can see needs to be done to observe around you, to see what other people may need and how you can possibly meet that need. What desire do you have? Because I'm convinced from what Scripture tells us, every one of us has gifts that God has given to us to build up His church. And there's no indication anywhere in Scripture that those gifts are taken away or they come to an end with nothing to change, nothing to replace them. We are to remain active members in the body of Christ until the day we see Him, either when He comes down to earth or when we die and we meet Him in heaven. Up until that moment, there are still things for you and me to do with the gifts that God has given us. And the gifts are not limited just to those that are listed in Scripture. But in many ways, those things that we seem to be successful at and they are helping other people, whether it's a phone call, a letter, a visit, a teaching, an instruction, whatever it might be, there is something that we all have to offer throughout our entire lives. The challenge is to discern, going back to that first part of Romans, discern what is the will of God in our lives? What is the next phase? It is right to make plans. It is right to ask for prayer from other people. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. Can you be praying and asking God to guide me? Paul asked these people to pray for protection. He knew he was going into a dangerous situation. It's not just an individual thing. It's something that the body does together with two or three or however many close Christian friends you've got. You can trust. They're not going to be spreading around, oh, did you hear such and such? But they will be a prayer warrior on your behalf that God would guide you in what you should do. And then when we make the plans for the future, and we've asked for prayer so that we can discern what it is God wants us to do, be ready to change your plan. Just like as Paul did. And one of the big lessons I've had to learn in life, and I think all of you have learned, is it's no good to go through life without a plan, just being at the mercy of whatever happens. Oh, well, I guess that'll happen. Oh, I don't want to do that. No. But we make a plan, and that's not final either. 
We make the plan to our best knowledge of what we can do, and then we've got to be willing to make the adjustments as life happens and as things change that we didn't anticipate. So yes, Paul got to Rome, absolutely, in chains. We don't know what's down the line, but we do know the Lord's in charge, and as long as we're seeking to do His will and to honor Him in what we say and how we live, it's going to be what He wants us to do. So where are you in your life now? I meant to give a disclaimer, sorry, at the beginning of this. It's not a Sunday school lesson. This is my sermon, sorry. It's just it's the way it's going to happen. What are you going to do now, looking at your life, looking at your past, looking at what you've been able to accomplish? What are you looking ahead to? What do you anticipate you could be doing that might be of help to someone else. Never too young and never too old to invest yourself in somebody else. And I'm convinced in God's eyes the world has changed not by thousands coming to know Christ at one time, though that does change it, but the world has changed when one Christian invests their life in one other person. And as that person is built up they invest their life in a person. And it spreads. You can do it with mathematics, and it's amazing how that can spread so rapidly. But our job is not to win the world in our personal daily life. Our job is to invest our lives in at least one other person. Now, it may be that that's so limited, it's just a husband or a wife or a family member or a neighbor. That's okay. The purpose is to do it for the glory of God and to help that other person and to strengthen them in their walk with Christ. We're closing one chapter in our lives. We're opening a new one. We're not at the end of the book. That doesn't happen until we see Jesus. The book goes on. And Paul knew that. And that's why he's describing his plans and can help us see how to make our plans. And you know, as I do, that when we make the effort to invest our lives in someone else's life, to be of help to them, they are eager to be helped. We're not forcing ourselves into any situation. But when we do that, we find that there is a peace and a contentment that comes into our lives that cannot be matched by any material goods. No new house, no new boat, no new car, no new clothes, can ever come close to that sense of peace and contentment that comes when we are used by God to help someone else know Him better. That's just the way it is. Be ready to do that. There'll be conflict, just as Paul experienced in his life. It's not easy sailing. And it's not always easy to determine the will of God. Sometimes there's a roadblock there or a conflict that's meant to help us go in another direction. And sometimes it's just something to be endured. And you still go the same way after you plow through it. Only the Lord knows that. And that's, again, the matter of discerning. With the help of brothers and sisters in Christ, what do I do now? Where do I go? Here is something I can do. It may not be much in the world's eyes, but between me and God, this is something I think I can do, and I'm going to do it.
I think that's really the whole point of why this is preserved for us, not to know Paul's travel plans, but to know how he looked at life as a follower of Jesus Christ and how we can implement that in our own experience. We do that until the day Jesus comes. And to draw from another letter that Paul wrote, this was to the church at Philippi, chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. I do not consider that I have made knowing Christ just my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Always looking ahead. Always striving to do what Christ wants me to do. Leaving the past in his hands. We did the best we could. It's done. It's over. Now we've got this. Now, as I was looking for uh, a hymn to go with this, I came across something really interesting I want to read to you. This is from a book that, that Stan Topple got out to some of us in the choir. But it's the history of some of the hymns. The hymn I'm going to read was one written by Fanny Crosby. She lived around the turn of the century. That means 1900. She was born before that and lived through that. Uh, but she was blind from birth. I can't really determine whether she was actually born blind or there was a mistake made after she was born by physicians, but she couldn't see, never could see. But she wrote prolific hymns and was a true lover of Christ. And this is what she writes in her autobiography about this hymn. All the way my Savior leads me came from the grateful heart of the blind hymn, blind hymn writer Fanny Crosby after she had received a direct answer to prayer. The story is included in Crosby's autobiography. This is a quote. The writing of this hymn, All the Way My Savior Leads Me, was a result of a personal experience. One day I wanted the modestly substantial amount of $5 for a particular purpose, and I needed it very badly. I did not know just then exactly how to get it and was led to pray for it. Somehow I knew the good Lord would give it to me if I asked him for it. Not long after I'd prayed for the money, a gentleman came into the house, passed the time of day, shook hands with me, and went out immediately. When I closed my hand, after the friendly salutation, I found in it a bill which she left there. Now remember, she's blind. She knows it's a piece of paper. She has no idea what it is. I have no way to, uh, I found in it a bill which she left me there. A visitor later told me it was a $5 bill. I have no way to account for this except to believe that God, in answer to my prayer, put it into the heart of this good man to bring me the money. My first thought was, in what a wonderful way the Lord helps me. All the way my Savior leads me, I immediately wrote the hymn, and Dr. Robert Lowry, the famous preacher and hymn writer, set it to music. Now, that's a great story, and yet I was just a little curious Five bucks just doesn't seem like a whole lot. I mean, it's great if God does that. This is 1900. So with the wonders of Googling and finding answers to strange, obscure questions, let me tell you this. In 1900, this bill was worth $5. In 2023, it would be worth $185.
That's the difference in inflation between then and now. But think of what we would do with $185. It'd be the same thing with what she needed this this $5 bill for. It would it would buy purchase the same thing. So she says a modestly substantial. I'd say yeah, that's a pretty generous gift. So here are the words. Remember, we're talking about planning our future, looking ahead. What does God want us to do? All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell, for I know whate'er befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. All the way my Savior leads me, cheers each winding path I tread, gives me grace for every trial, feeds me with a living bread. Though my weary steps may falter and my soul athirst may be, gushing from the rock before me, lo, a spring of joy I see. All the way my Savior leads me, oh, the fullness of his love. Perfect rest to me is promised in my Father's house above, when my spirit, clothed immortal, wings its flight to realms of day, this my song through endless ages. Jesus led me all the way. That's a great truth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Paul and for preserving these letters he wrote. Thank you for those saints who've gone ahead of us, like Fanny Crosby, who've experienced your power in their lives, and they take no credit for themselves. It all goes to you. Lord, each one of us is in a transition phase of some sort in our lives. Grant us the grace and the wisdom and the patience to follow your leading, Give us the energy and strength to make our plans. Give us the flexibility to adapt those as we seek to follow you. And grant, Lord, we will know increasing peace and contentment because we are living the life that you have called us to live. Whether it ever be known by anyone else or not, it does not matter. We understand that. What matters is that you know. You see our hearts that we want to do what you want us to do. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.